podcast is a conduit of hope, safety, and trust. And our purpose and vision for our lives is to be in service to others and to support them in understanding that they matter. Through open dialogue and conversation, through sharing ourselves, our lives, insights, perspectives, and experiences, we will offer solutions for any challenges or adversities you may be faced with. And we want you to know that you can come to us for support, guidance, and inspiration. This podcast is sponsored by Laguna View Detox, a state-of-the-art substance abuse and alcohol detox and residential program. We are not affiliated with any 12-step program. If you or a loved one is suffering from addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you need detox or residential treatment from drugs and alcohol, please contact 888-448-1884 to speak with a specialist. And now, with the Recovery Media Podcast, your hosts, Jim Grant and Louis Iacona. Okay, welcome to the recovery. Mo- <laughs> <laughs> okay, oh, boy. welcome back to the recovery media podcast with Jim Grant and Louis Iacona. We're really grateful to be here and excited. We got a great discussion that we're going to be talking about today to, ho- to hopefully support everybody out there. And uh, you know, with our background in terms of you know helping alcoholics and addicts that there's a lot of struggle and difficulty sometimes with talking to people and getting them help and and helping people that don't want to be helped helping people that are you know resisting taking care of themselves and doing something about it and i think helping anybody in general right uh we just don't want to make sure that this podcast is just specific to addicts and alcoholics but helping somebody that doesn't want to help and um, for me, I went from the age of 14 years old to 24, just about 25, struggling with addiction. And um, in my story is definitely plenty of times where I didn't want to get help. And for my family, I think they, it was really most difficult for them to stand by and, and watch that and see me struggle and know that I'm, I, I can be better but I just wasn't willing to do it. So a couple of things that my family did was they make sure they made sure they set firm boundaries and they continued to help not enable me in the direction of recovery. And I think that word gets confused often, right? What's the difference between enabling and helping? Cause it sounds very, you know, very similar. So well, even helping, helping and supporting is also different too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for, you know, helping and and enabling specifically, I think helping is making somebody uncomfortable uh, in to pursue change, right? And then um, enabling would be making them comfortable in the situation, letting them stay in the house, uh, giving them the keys to the car, making sure they have some money in their pocket to get high, even if you're telling yourself that's not what they're doing. Um, so all of these things are involved in my story and I know a lot of people struggle with this and yeah, I think 
it's so difficult. I mean, pertaining to the disease of addiction, it is the, the disease of a thought process, right? It is a, a disease that tells you you don't have a disease. So how do you combat that? So, I mean, you know, in terms of, for me, you know, my main experience is, is you know, being in AA for 30 years. And then, you know, my background is, you know, being an alcohol drug counselor with adolescents and, you know, also adults. But the whole, the whole, the whole concept and even how it's changed over the years, you know, even like it, you know, it being labeled as a disease that. It wasn't always like that. No, that I, I forget how it, how it transpired, but, you know, it was, you know, the back and forth in terms of, you know, even just the concept of, of, uh, you know, how to address it and, and even, you know, how it was looked at. But, you know, getting back to, you know, how do you... So you were asking me in terms of for myself, in terms of how I went about... I think that. I was just throwing it out there. I was just throwing out, you know, how do you combat that? And I have some personal answers, solutions that I utilize for myself and for the families that I help, but... Yeah, I mean, you know, answer it for yourself or how it has pertained to somebody in your life or when you were working with kids or when you were working with adults. Well, I mean, I guess the simplest way to answer it is to share a little bit about like where I where I started. So like, you know, we've mentioned before, I mean, I've mentioned before, like I started drinking when I was 15 and, you know, it, it's what you know, everyone was doing, you know, at that time. and Teenage so, wastelands, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So nice. Um, so I, I, I just did what, you know, what everyone else was doing that I thought, or at least, you know, my friends and, and, you know, it, it, it progressed. Like we talk about the progression of the disease. So I, I was out of control. I, I, you know, I, I had gaps in between of, of like, you know, early on and figuring out different ways to, to find alcohol and, you know, being, being, you know, underage at that time. And, but once, once I, once I started getting the effects of alcohol and getting drunk and, and everything that came along with it and, you know, what alcohol did for me, um, you know, I was a self-conscious kid and, you know, didn't, didn't like myself, wasn't confident and, and, you know, and then once I drank alcohol, I fit in, I belonged, I felt great, you know, and that was, that was what I needed at the time, you know, so I thought, and it, and it worked for a while until, you know, until it, it stopped working. Yeah. So up into the point that you realized you had an issue. What, and I'm assuming that your family realized you, you had, that you had an issue. What did your family do to push you, direct you into recovery? Was there anything specific? Oh yeah. Yeah. And actually even, even, even thinking, thinking about this throughout since we've gotten together about, you know, uh, from the podcast is that, the the intervention the the parental intervention you know 
So you had, uh, I remember you sharing, you had a moment, well, I think with both your parents, but like, you know, we're, we're done, you know, and you're on your own and that's it. For me, it was my mother and I, you know, from 15 to 26 is, that was my time frame, and, you know, progressed and put them through hell for all of that time I was living at home. And um, my mother would confront me, you know, at different points along the way. My mother was one of those one, you know, parents where she, she waited up for me, you know, in the middle of the night, whether it was two in the morning or four in the morning or six in the morning, I would try and sneak in and <laughs> I would try and sneak in. And this is when she was smoking and the lights would be all out. And I, I'm, I th I'm thinking that, I, you, know, I, you know, I'm successful in my sneaking, sneaking in, I'm getting away with it. And all of a sudden, I see this lit up cigarette in the dark, in the and she's like, "Do you know what time it is?" So, uh, so yeah, she was she was my she was my my uh, interrupter, and you know, confronted me and 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 all of that. So she stayed on me throughout the years, and and you know, this is this is where you know this is where I'm thinking in terms of how it played out for me with what we're talking about is that. I was like, whatever, mom, you know, like, you know, the whole, like, there's alcoholism on both sides of our family. Okay. You know, you address that you like knew that and address well, that. My mother would, she oh, met, she, okay. She, she would address yeah, it with you. It. Uh, gotcha. So I was like, wow, that was pretty insightful. No, for, no, no, you no, know, 15 I, year old. No, I, uh, I became insightful and wise later on in life. But, um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I continued doing what I was doing. I knew I had a problem and it was, but that's the whole thing. That's, that's the difference between, you know, social drinking and uh, using drugs for, you know, a phase or a period of your life that I, once I drank, I couldn't stop. And if I stopped, I, you know, I remember I was an athlete, so I, I would be playing softball, uh, you know, on different teams and played different, you know, different days of the week. And I remember I had a, I was playing on a Friday night league and that was that was uh, not convenient because of my lifestyle was waiting all week, you know, if I was able to wait until Friday, but you know, the whole happy hour thing at the bars. So I, I remember this one time I, uh, I had a few, few beers at, at happy hour before my game, which I normally didn't do because I took, I took sports seriously and how I, how I performed and didn't, didn't want to affect that. But this one time, you know, I, I did. So I remember rushing to the game and worrying about getting there on time. And then I looked at, you know, I was like getting closer. And I'm like, and this is the difference between a mind, the mind frame or mindset or thought process of an alcoholic is, oh, wow, I, I had time for one more beer. I could have had one more beer. So, so that's the, you know, that's the difference there. So. Yeah, I, I, I just didn't care. I, I seem, well, of course I cared, but I didn't, I didn't care about what it was doing to me in terms of like, because I thought that's what I was supposed to do, you know? But I, I, think I, at, I think at that age, you are, you know, you go through these phases at that age, what I could relate with 
is being that young, being 15, 16, 17, you just don't think that it's ever going to get to the point that it gets to, right? So you start off and it's fun. You think you're having fun. You think it's normal. All of those things go through your mind, right? And before you actually have any decent responsibility in your life, right? Because what do you have to do at 15? Right? You had to show up for school. You had to show up for sports. Um, your parent, you know, your mother paid for it, uh, right? Like, I mean, you know, there's not really much responsibility, so I don't think there's much to lose. And as we grow older and things progress, whether it's addiction or depression or anxiety, you have more to lose. And it feels like the weight of the world is 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 heavier. At 15, you're just ripping and running and kind of just hanging out, right? So as far as that phase, you know, 15 to 16, 17, when did you realize that it was an issue? When would you say that your mother realized, wow, you know, Jimmy's got a, a drinking problem? Well, I mean, it, like I said, you know, I've, I've told this story before where, you know, the first time I drank was 15 and that's the first time that I... You knew then? No, I'm just saying my mother... You know the 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 way that it unfolded because because of the family history, yeah, and the fact that you know of how I was, but then you know then I hit it and you know that whole thing for like you know the first few years, but I I was I started playing softball at seventeen for bars, underage, with older guys, uh, so. I was in the bar scene at that at that age and trying to keep up with them and <laughs> and then uh, eventually being able to so and then it was then it was you know 18 graduating high school going to you know community college and I was in the middle of uh, in the middle of it drinking at night playing softball on Sundays and, and during the week and drinking and and um, coming home drunk and being hung over. And so my mother, and I don't remember exactly, you know, what age I was when it all, you know, but she would, you know, confront me constantly and that, that I, you know, needed, needed to stop, needed help and all this. And again, I blew it off and, and was, unresponsive and didn't even consider stopping getting help at any point along the way. Again, it was, it was not only was it, not only was it what I did and what the friends that I, and the people that I was hanging out, what we did. Now it's bring it back to, you know, the topic in terms of, well, well, if you need help, and people are offering help and you're refusing help why you know like my i was i was like i was miserable i was you know not you know 18 20 22 20, you know 24 going nowhere fast and until the time came when i was 26 i did a, like a, a weekend binge won't go into the details, but woke up Monday morning and I was like bad, you know, bad news. Um, and that was the time where my mother confronted me. And for the first time, or at least the first time that I heard her or remembered, 
she goes, well, actually, the, the, other, the other thing, just to give you the full picture for everybody, was my mother was, and getting to your enabler word, she was my enabler, even though she was the one that confronted me from time to time and, you know, over a period of time. So I, I was, I, I, I just was hungover really bad. And I went through my whole process, you know, by myself of, of like self-loathing and couldn't believe I did it again. And, you know, this is like really bad. So she comes, says something to me. And I was like at co in college at the time. And she's like, why aren't you working on your paper? She knew I had something to, you know, something to do. And I said, mom, I think I have a drinking problem. And I expected her what she normally would do in those situations. It's okay. It's okay, Jimmy. You know, she's like, you're goddamn right you do. And if you don't stop and if you don't go to AA today with my friend Kevin, you're out. And I was stunned. But it got my attention and it also was timely in the fact that it was a really bad hangover. I felt really bad about myself. And, uh, but there is something about when you're addicted, whether it's alcohol, whether it's cocaine, whether it's heroin, it has a hold on you. And that's the difference between addiction and, and, you know, everything else that's, that's lesser than that. So, you know, it, it's, it's really, and I, and I don't know, and, and people have different opinions and that's the whole thing about the, you know, the disease of it is, and this is also the insanity of the disease of addiction is, you know, the, the example that we use in, in, in meetings is, well, if we were normal, like if you had cancer, you would go to get help. You would go get your treatment. You would continue to get treatment. Well, with us, it's not that simple. You know, we were like powerless over yep. our addiction, right? Yep. So, yeah. Well, that's a good topic. And, and specifically, we, I deal with that every single day, right? So what you'll have is you'll have the addict or alcoholic that says they want to skip treatment process, right? They don't want to go to detox and residential treatment. They just want to do outpatient. That's well, fill what, in everybody that's listening for the first time exactly what you what you do. Okay, yeah, thanks, Jim. So um, my name's Louis Iacona, and I own um, Laguna View Detox in California. It's a substance abuse and, and alcohol detox and residential program. And um, yeah, that's my background. I also own four male sober homes on Long Island where we get to help a ton of men in the aftercare process. And the name of that is Wellness Transitional Living. Um, so yeah, so back to what I was saying, you know, you have people that want to skip treatment process. Now you wouldn't have somebody that comes into, you know, the oncology office or that, you know, usually has diabetes or heart disease or liver, you know, or liver disease. And they sit in front of the doctor and the doctor tells them, Hey, here's the diagnosis, right? This is what you need to do. And you turn around and you say, listen, doc, it's okay. I'm going to skip to skip to the maintenance process, <laughs> you know? So you, I, you know, I see that all the time and, you know, wrapping it back into my own story and my own experience and, you know, going through many years of my parents trying to help me, my aunts, uncles, my Nana, my, you know, everybody that really was a productive member of society in my life trying to help me and me not wanting help. It went on for years. And 
when I, and I live such a different life now because not only do I accept help, but I take action and I'm also so aware of myself that in real time, I can make changes. Not always, not perfect, but a lot of times I can. So, you know, and also I have my own home. I, you know, I maneuver on my, on my own. There is nobody that is overseeing me. Right. So, but back when I was living with my parents, I was a maniac. I was getting into a ton of trouble. I was using drugs. I had a, you know, authority issue. I didn't respect any authority. I was getting in trouble in school, uh, eventually getting into criminal, criminal trouble. And, you know, it was many times my parents enabled the situation. And I, you know, I remember the first time I got kicked out of the house, I was 21 years old. At that time, you still got some friends, right? You still can couch hop. You could still maneuver and, 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 you know, you're not really living on the streets. You say, Hey John, you know, you mind if I stay over your house for a little bit? Yeah. Eventually I show back up to my parents, beg them to get back in. They let you in. Right. But, um, as the years went on, the consequences got larger. Um, you know, I got kicked out and I would have to go, go and stay homeless in South Jamaica, right. Where I was using, or I would get kicked out and, uh, I would call those friends and they would say, Hey, listen, man, my mom's not okay with you staying here. Right. Or parents themselves would answer the phones and say, Hey, listen, Louie, you can't stay here. So things started to change and, I believe that my parents started to realize that they were unable to control me and in turn started working on themselves. And that was one of the differences in my story and my parents' story. So they started to make these changes and they started to firmly set boundaries. And I would show up with my bags and they'd say, listen, we love you, but we're not willing to help in this capacity, right? And in other words, they were saying they weren't willing to enable but that was their way of helping, was to push me in the direction of recovery. And it worked all the time. I have, you know, I believe that nobody really gets sober when they want to. That the process usually starts off with you feeling like you have to by some sort of divine intervention. The judge, you know, Jim's mom walking in and giving him that ultimatum. Hey, listen, you don't get your act together now. You can't, you can't live here. And that's one thing that is different between the disease of addiction and other diseases is that they're accepted by society. And for the disease of addiction, it's not. It's not accepted by society for the most part. And that's where we talk about the stigma of addiction and how that affects the families and the addict and alcoholic. So for me, I didn't pay much attention to it, but I wasn't running around telling everybody I was a heroin addict. That's for sure, right? And from my parents' point of view, and you hear parents talk about this in whatever form, for, form they're in, talking about going out to eat with aunts and uncles or friends, and the conversation comes up, hey, how's Louie doing? And my parents would cringe, right? They would be uncomfortable. They wouldn't want to talk openly, even though that is what they should have did, depending on the situation and where they're at, right? If it's at dinner... They could have kind of deflected the question and maybe talked to somebody after. But my parents started to get more comfortable with that. And they started to understand that a lot of other people were dealing with this and they weren't alone. And in that thought was the ability to move forward and start to ask for help from their point of view. Um, 
and you know, that's where things changed. And the final straw was at 24 years old when they sent me to treatment and I was 1200 miles away. I'm from New York. So I, I was down in South Florida and it was the best thing they could have ever did to me. And I tell people every day that I would not be in the position that I'm in if they hadn't done that. Because what that afforded me was me to get away and really start to learn on my own. And I always talk about the developmental plateaus that a human being goes through in general, right? Like from the time that you, uh, you know, celebrate, maybe a girl celebrates her sweet 16 or, you know, um, you're getting your license around 17, 18 and going to driver's education. And, you know, then you're picking colleges and all of these things are developmental plateaus. And for me, I missed all of them because of my substance abuse issue. And when you say developmental plateaus, are you, are you talking about milestones or is it- milestones, developmental plateaus? I mean, they're kind of, I guess it's just a different word for it. Um, because in the milestone, right, would be a certain developmental, right? Like you're excited about your about getting your license, then you get it, right? Or you apply to these colleges and then you get into one and you commit to one, right? So those, the commitment and the achievement and all of that is so important. And for addicts and alcoholics, a lot of times we miss many of them. For me, I miss the majority of them. And when I started to get sober in, in South Florida, I started to hit those milestones, those achievements, those developmental plateaus. And it started to make me feel good and started to fill a little bit of the voids that were left behind. And that's when people talk about, look back at your story and, and, and try to figure out like where it went wrong. Or I remember that, you know, that question used to make my, my brain want to explode because it's just so much stuff and you look back and you can't really pinpoint. But when I started to do the work in the program of AA, which I had chose to, to be my fellowship and I started to go through the steps and I started to look back and have time sober and the ability to look back and and rewind that tape. I started to realize that that was one of the reasons that I continued to dig my own grave because of those missed developmental plateaus. So bringing it back to how my parents assisted in helping somebody that didn't want to is that they cut, they, they wiped their hands clean to me. They, you know, still loving and supporting me, but from afar, not helping with finances, not helping with a car, not helping with paying my car insurance or my phone bill or all of the things that at 24, you should be, in my opinion, should be responsible enough to handle some of those things, right? They cut all that off and they said, You need to figure it out on your own. And I had help, sponsor, friends in recovery, sober support group, a therapist, um, you know, and the the list continues of of what types of support I had. But um, I believe that an addict and alcoholic needs to have those consequences. And sometimes they're not self-inflicted necessarily where the people around you, since the disease, since it's a family disease of addiction and it affects everybody, they need to be the ones to set the boundaries to somewhat form those consequences. Oh yeah, because because whether whether that happens at fifteen or sixteen or twenty four or twenty six, 
that we're as the addict, as the alcoholic, we're sure as hell not going to hold ourselves accountable and responsible. That was the, you know, when you were talking, that was the thing I was thinking about because you used the word consequences and, the, and that was the big part of the foundation of outreach, you know, where we first, you know, met each other, you as a resident and me as a counselor, is that the whole, not only consequences to your actions, but also consequential thinking. And, and even the, you know, what was so great about, you know, the outreach program is that it, you know, everybody was there, you know, all, all of the residents were there just like AA, you know, it's different stories, but you know, different levels of, of, uh, you know, of, of situations of why you're there. Some were mandated, you know, through the courts and others were, as we joke around, you know, mom dated, uh, the same thing as, as AA. So, but that's what, that's what, what worked at outreach was the the you know the behavioral modification part of it and and I remember talking about you know talking to families and parents over the years where with what we're talking about is like just like your parents that they put up with you or they let you go there was no consequences and you were doing what you were doing and at a certain point, they lost control, and then they finally said, that's it. And then, luckily for you, that was, you know, that was just, you know, that was the place that you ended up for the first time. And, you know, how that was the general thread, you know, with all the families in outreach or, you know, and whatever, you know, whatever the, the, the facility is or even like, you know, not bailing somebody out. They go to jail, let them, you know, stay there overnight or whatever that, you know, that gets your attention, you know, when there's, when there's consequences. So the, the other thing I wanted, I wanted you to share to, to provide, whether it's a message or, or a frame of reference for the listeners is what is, you know, some of the examples or even a general description or explanation of how you have attempted to help people or even helped people along the way that in what we're talking about in how they refused or were not ready or open to getting help. So, yeah, I, I think for me, what I do is I do my best to guide the family from the addict's point of view. So, Usually, the circumstances that a family member reaches out and they say, hey, Lou, my son, my daughter, my husband, my wife uh, is struggling with substance abuse or alcoholism. And we start to get into the conversation. And what I do is I gather as much information from the dynamics of what's going on, who's in the home, um, who's most comfortable with them, start to look for the leverage, right? And then... I start to make recommendations. I start to make suggestions. So the first suggestion would be for me to try to get in front of them and talk to them and see if I could convince them to go get help. If they decide not to do that, then I work with the family to start to put down some ultimatums. Those ultimatums can look different depending on the situation. But for instance, if there's an 18-year-old not going to college, using in the house, um, 
basically run, you know, trying to run the show over there and verbally abusing the parents. Um, you know, why should they have the right to have a car that's in the parents' name where the parents are paying their insurance and they're also paying the cell phone bill and they're also giving them a couple of bucks to go spend on the weekends or whenever, you know, these things need to be taken away. And I would advise the parents to do that. If there's a situation where there's a husband that's, you know, drinking a liter of vodka every night, um, then, but he's also, you know, making the, you know, um, he's also the provider for the household, right? Then the ultimatums would look a little different. You know, maybe this kid's involved, so she can't necessarily leave. It's all about getting into the dynamics of the family and, and looking for leverage. And on one from one side, you could say, well, that's unfortunate. You know, you have to look for this leverage, these ultimatums. But from my experience, like I had said, those consequences and those ultimatums can be the deciding factor in us going to get help. Now, you always have somebody like, you know, the 21-year 21 old uh, Lewis, 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 or, you know, the 22 or 23 year old Lewis that doesn't mind going out and being homeless. And what I tell the parents is they don't have control over their addict or alcoholic. So if um, I decide to go and get homeless, if I decide to go and be homeless, it's the same decision I decide. It's the same thought process that I decided to go, you know, cop in Jamaica train station over by Jamaica train station every day in South Jamaica. It's, I made that decision, Right. So I knew the consequences and I still made the decision. So when you're offering your loved one help and on the other end, you're offering an ultimatum, you're giving them the choice to make. So I also guide parents in that, in that, in that fashion where I make sure they understand that they're not just saying, Hey, Susie P you got to get out of the house, right? They're saying here is what one option for help. And on the other end is the door. And that's up to you. So I think I answered your question, right? Yeah, I, absolutely. And uh, and and what I also ask you to explain. So like, because we know how many people, not only do we know how many people out there in the world are struggling with addiction of some sort that like you have explained and like, people know is that so many other people suffer you know speaking of consequences like our parents suffered the consequences of our of our addiction so in terms of giving somebody out there um, the message of how to respond or interact with someone that is struggling you know with an addiction and how to support them, how to help them, how to guide them, you know, what would you say to them? I would say utilize all of the resources that you have. Utilize Al-Anon, utilize Naranon, um, utilize a private therapist, utilize an interventionist, utilize the nonprofits in your area or the outpatient meetings for the families that they have. I always say that an addict and alcoholic is working a 24-7 job, right? To get high, to drink, to manipulate, to lie, steal, cheat, whatever they're doing. So as the parents and the loved ones, you got to essentially be doing the same thing. Set boundaries, firm boundaries, stick to them. Um, 
you know, create ultimatums. Uh, a lot of times these families are living like prisoners in their own home. Meanwhile, for my parents, they were paying the mortgage. They were putting food on the table. I wasn't doing any of that, right? Why did I have the right to be disrespectful? Why did I have the right to dictate where and when they went to wherever, right? Because it was always about Lewis. So unfortunately, it's a little bit of a chess match, but um, I believe that if you're continuing to work and focus on yourself and utilizing the resources that you that you have, that there is hope. One thing I want to share with all the listeners out there is that, you know, if you heard my story, you know, I've been to treatment 40 times. I have nine overdoses. I've been incarcerated. I've been homeless. If there's, if there's a shot, right, you definitely have it if you're out there struggling. If you're a family member and your loved one is struggling, there's definitely plenty of a shot of them to get sober. There's definitely hope. Um, there was times I, I didn't believe I was going to get sober. And to be honest, I was well willing to hang the gloves up. I didn't mind if this was my last shot of heroin. And that's just the truth. I thought that it would have been easier, not just for me, but more importantly, my family, because they had continued to have to watch me struggle. So, um, and my family, I believe at some point was mourning me as well while I was still alive. Mm. So that being said, um, I did what I had to do. And I went and continued to go to meetings and work with my sponsor. And I worked at my addiction harder than I worked at, I worked in my recovery, sorry, harder than I worked in my addiction. And I know for a fact, if I have it in me, that each and every person out there has it in them to do that, to work as, as hard at your recovery as you did in your addiction. Because there was not a time where you told me, hey, Lou, there's a bundle of heroin, which is 10 bags for the listeners out there that doesn't know, um, or any amount of heroin in, in, that, in that case where they, you could say it was 20 miles away and I would have figured out with no car, with no license, with no money, no nothing. I would have figured out how to get it. So to be so re- resourceful, how can you harness that energy and, pursue and, and, and utilize it in your recovery? And I, I believe that that is one of the, you know, the ingredients to the successful recipe, right? Amongst many other things. But um, yeah, so appreciate that. And I'm sure the listeners do as well. You know, that's the whole point, you know, of what we're what we're what we're looking to provide here. And again, whatever the situation or subject that we're talking about. Like even my experience of 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 drinking and, and doing drugs and being stuck in that in that lifestyle and that's what it was. It was stuck. It was lost. It was it was uh, there was no way out. There was no way out. You talked about if that was your last time, you know, that you would accept that or or, or even like knowing that, you know, what you were about to do in terms of using heroin could kill you and you still did it, you know, and that's the insanity. So whether it's even like, you know, staying in an abusive relationship or whether it's even just living a certain way and knowing within ourselves that, that we're not happy and, and not doing anything about it. And that's the, you know, that's the blessing that I continue to be reminded of 
of how lucky and how blessed I am that I found AA, you know, and, you know, that's the, you know, that's the, you know, that's what we talk about in, in, at meetings in terms of, you know, that a grateful addict, a grateful alcoholic, you know, will always continue to, you know, stay clean and sober. And, um, you know, you, you also talked about how like you, you work recovery more than you work, you know, that you put into, put into your, you know, disease and addiction and, you know, the old, the old school, uh, message that we used to talk about meetings, you know, that I remember is that even if you put in half the effort into your recovery that you put into your addiction, you'll be in a good, you'll be, you'll be good. And, uh, you know, because as much as I knew way before that I got into AA that I had a problem, I didn't know. I didn't know what the solution was. You know, I was so clueless that my best friend at the time was already in AA and I didn't even know it until until my mother, you know, uh, you know, threw that at me that, you know, you better go with him to a meeting. So so it's really, you know, really, you know, it brings me back. And, and that's like, you know, we, we, we talk about the things that we talk about in regard to providing hope and support and inspiration for the listeners. But I don't know about you, but, you know, this, these conversations, you know, always help me, always support me. Yeah, so, me too. Yeah. And also, I mean... Just so the listener knows out there that we want this to be an interactive podcast, right? This is going to be on TikTok. This is going to be on Facebook and Instagram and Spotify and Apple Music and you know, hopefully as many platforms as we could get it on, but we want it to be interactive. We want people to let the, us know what they think, what they feel about the podcast, how can we make it better? Um, improvements, right? Uh, what topics would like to be discussed? And yeah, just, you know, really have involvement and, and you know, getting back to talking about hope, right? Well, before you go there, there's even the whole like, uh, you know, live open chat that we're going to, you know, implement in terms of figuring that out so we can, uh, you know, hear what people are, are thinking, you know, as we go. But, you know, where, where, we're going to do whatever we can to, to, you know, to make the difference that we can and to include, you know, include everybody out there and whatever we got to do to have this be the biggest and best and most uh, sufficient way to support people. Well, we're going to do that. A lot of bumps in the road. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Trying to record this thing and figure it out, you know, but I, I, I think that it's a testament to how persistent you and I are in our own lives to change, right? And to figure it out and to manage it and to balance it, right? You, you on your end, you got the twin boys. I got a new baby. Um, then we have a ton of other things going on in our lives. And, you know, to make the time, which obviously I appreciate you for doing and staying on top of me to make sure that I do as well, right? Um, and well, I mean, that that's how our relationship has been for, for, for a bunch of years now, you know, well, so it's a collective, collective effort and, and complimenting each other and, uh, filling in the gaps, you know, that, that each other has, but even going back to, even going back to, you know, acknowledging me and I appreciate that. And, you know, 
acknowledging us as as our persistence but you know that that's the other thing is that that's everybody has that in them you know and some people just don't realize it or yeah. that they lost it or that they need to be reminded of it and even like again through our different messages that we have of our own experience and then you know the guest messages of their experience and whatever they have to offer that's the whole point is 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 giving whatever it is that we have you know that whole thing like give it away in order to keep it so this again like we say this is our way of of wanting to make a difference in the world and also benefiting from ourselves that whenever we give we receive but you know just to reiterate is that whatever anybody is struggling with whatever they're going through everybody has has something in them to to wake up and realize that again they matter and realize that they are capable of accomplishing anything yeah I think that that in life we a lot of times take a back seat to our own vehicle, right? And what I mean by that is whether you're a husband and it's your wife that you're giving more attention to and or, or your kids or your job over your kids and your wife, we have these distractions that come in, you know, and and for me it's about realizing that I'm the most important person to my equation. But in that realization and living that way, I get to give away more of myself, right? And I think that is something that happens to a lot of people is you just, you lose sight of, of what's important. You lose sight of yourself. You lose sight of what motivated you, you know, maybe hobbies or, or you know, different types of things, right? And I always tell people, you know, like people shy away from therapy or treatment, rehab, um, you know, people shy away from things that are going to be good. And in turn, they make all these excuses and bringing it back to what the discussion topic is, is, you know, assisting people um, th that don't want to get help, right? Helping somebody that doesn't want the help. And I think that when you show them that you're strong, that you can do this, that you are going to stay consistent, then it, it it gives that vibe, it gives that energy to them that you're going to stand firm on this and get it done, right? And that, for me, when I saw that in my parents, it completely changed how I was pursuing my own recovery. Because prior to that, I show up on the front door with my bags, they let me back in. I get arrested, they pay for bail. You know, I need clothes, they go out and buy them for me. They get me another cell phone. They give me the keys to the car, right? All these things that I had mentioned prior. When they stopped doing that and I saw how powerful they could be, of course I felt a little defeated at first, right? But it really empowered me to, to start grinding, to start making those changes. So... After the fact, now, some years later, what also is the lessons that you've gotten from that? 
it's that's an interesting question for me you know we talk about the miracles and and these and these things and for me it's it, it happens every day um also inside those miracles i'd bring it back to what you were saying kind of the realizations are of like you know lessons learned right um i mean it could be something as little as you know the snow that just came in and having having to shovel or take care of the snow right for my household or um I'm thinking crazy, but you know, like changing the filters on my ductless air conditioner units, like it's the smallest of things that make me appreciate my parents so much more. Rewind the tape, right? There was a whole process to get there. Um, you know, I talk about those developmental plateaus and I, I don't mean to, you know, go back so, so far into the podcast, but those reaching those every single time having to pay my own mortgage having to pay my own bills right and i'm br i'm i'm bringing it back to like normal type of life things but the lessons are just are everywhere i think it's just really about opening your eyes and and seeing them yeah and and even even what uh i was thinking like directly bringing it to real life situations of addiction or inappropriate behavior, anger, disrespect that we all have, like we've shared those moments of, of our parents, you know, um, finally saying enough and then us being taken aback. What do you mean? You know, what do you mean you've had enough? You know, we're going to continue, you know, we're going to keep this, you know, keep this, uh, you know, game going uh, the way that it's been played. And even like when you, I'm sure when you first got brought to outreach from your parents, even though you were mandated, you must have been really angry at them. And like for me, it was my mother's ultimatum. I was like angry at her. I was I was angry at the world, you know, angry at myself that I ended up in AA. You know, for me, it wasn't, it wasn't, um, you know, jails or, or institution or, you know, or treatment or anything like that. So that was my introduction to reality and an opportunity to have things be different in my life. But, you know, whether, whether you're on the, the, the end of the parent or the, the spouse, that's, you know, on the on the receiving end there is that moment of where you can say enough and and not only not only stand for yourself but also stand for the other person and yes there there will be you know resistance and pushback from them but our experience and many others that we know that after the fact we actually appreciate and love them you know, for them being strong enough and courageous enough to say enough. And that also is love too. You know, that, that I knew my mother loved me uh, regardless of her enabling me or eventually stopping. But, you know, even like for me being a, you know, being a, a new dad, 
you know, for the first time later in life that the times, even though I say enough, you know, to them when, you know, when, uh, don't you get fresh now, Jimmy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but like, you know, the, the, the saying no, when they're, you know, when they're standing on top of, uh, you know, on the six foot, you know, cabinet or something about to jump off that, uh, you know, I need to step in. Um, but there's so much, there's so much from the, the space of, of courage and, and love to, to step in when we see some of our loved ones suffering. Yeah. And I think that's really the conclusive solution to this podcast is you're going to encounter people that don't want help and in turn really what you're supposed to be doing is helping yourself and that puts out into the universe puts out that energy that you're not willing to stand for certain things right um you're willing to support them continuing to move forward in their progression but not in their you know in them standing still in the place that they're at I think that's one of one of the things that I've at least taken from this podcast and yeah and even and even uh, you know and I don't even think it has to be consciously that you're standing for yourself or loving yourself is that think about it from the perspective of you know of the person suffering is like with us at at a certain point what I mentioned before we crossed that line and then we became helpless and hopeless. And even though I knew that I was suffering and that I was lost and that I was out of control, I didn't have it in me to like seek help. I didn't have it in me to say enough, enough to really do anything about it. It took my mother in that moment to get my attention and saying what she said. So, you know, even for us in our different roles, you know, within you doing what you're doing with addicts and families and me, the work that I've done in, you know, being a, being a counselor and, and being a coach that we stand and we, we, and what's that phrase is a phrase, but like, but like what my point is, is like sometimes we have to be strong when the other person can't and then create the moment and the opportunity for them to eventually get strong on their own. And that actually also ties into what I was thinking before, what they say in AA, I don't know if they say it in NA as well, but you know, we, we, as in the, the community, the fellowship of AA for the newcomer is that we love you until you're able to love yourself. Yeah. I love that saying. Yeah. That's a good one. So I think, I think, uh, I think, I think we're, we're at the end and I hope that, uh, you know, what we talked about gave some, some, you know, some support, some guidance, some inspiration 
for anybody out there. And, um, you know, if anybody needs to reach out to us for further support, you know, they can, they can reach out to us on the, you can reach out to us on recovery media, Facebook page. Um, we're also going to, we, we, we also have TikTok and we have Instagram as well. And just to remind everybody, if anybody is struggling with substance abuse and alcoholism and, and specifically needs detox and residential treatment, they could find us at www.lagunaviewdetox.com. And Jim, if you want to leave your coaching. Yeah. So for me, I'm, I'm a, uh, you know, I've done different, different types of coaching over the years, you know, life coaching, relationship coaching and, and even though what I'm doing currently falls into that as well, what I am uh, mainly strictly working with is, is fathers. So you can go to Jim Grant Coaching on Facebook and even send me an email at jimgrantcoaching at yahoo.com. And, uh, you know, let's talk. And, you know, whoever, you know, even just like I said, we in terms of, whether you're the father and you're looking for support or whether you have a loved one that uh, you feel would benefit from getting support, that's, that's why we're here. Thanks, Jim. And guys, again, until next time, this is Lewis and Jim with Recovery Media Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Have a great day. Find us on social media at The Recovery Media Podcast. And of course, download, rate, review, and subscribe wherever great podcasts are found.